Okay, if you would take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Philippians, Philippians chapter 1, as we have kind of just gotten started in this wonderful study in Philippians chapter 1. In our last message two weeks ago, which was really just kind of our background discussion, we discussed several of sort of the important key components in the background of Philippians and some of the key words that we're going to see bear out throughout the book. Uh, we talked about that word bond servants, which really means slaves, desirous slaves of the Lord, and that this is exactly what Paul and Timothy were that uh, Paul wrote the book. Um, Timothy perhaps was the one who was the amanuensis. He was the scribe, if you will. Uh, but Timothy was very important in the ministry there in that part of, uh, of Greece because this was his home region. And so he was, as Paul came in and uh, was very foreign to this culture, keep in mind that this is one of the first areas where there are absolutely uh, no effective Jewish presence. There is no synagogue, there is no Jewish cultural impact. So it's totally out of Paul's bailiwick. I mean, he's the Pharisee of Pharisees, right? He understands all about Judaism and, and he's all about evangelizing and ministering to the Jew, although God has called him to be the apostle to the Gentile. And this is that first Gentile church that Paul plants. So Timothy is critical at this church. It's, it's like having, you know, the homeboy there to, to come alongside and to translate and, you know, having us come from Idaho via California and gotten here and, you know, fortunately y'all are welcoming and warm, but had I have not had Tom to translate a few times when, you know, we're in some of these men's meetings and I could go back and go, what did he say? Um, you know, it, that's really helpful. That's really helpful. Well, that's kind of, that's Timothy. Right? He's taking Paul aside and going, no, no, no. That's what he said, but that's not what he meant. And uh, same kind of thing. So Timothy is, is a vital import here. And, and it's really important that we recognize this. We won't see a ton of this develop throughout the rest of the text, but you need to understand it because I know as the good Bereans that are reading through the rest of the Scripture, this really is, is Timothy's first injection into ministry. I mean, he, he's, you know, here and, you know, like, uh, like Brax and Derek that are getting ready, you know, juniors in, in school looking in the theology program and looking to go into pastoral ministry and, and we're going to be taking them in. You're going to see these two guys in a, different, in a few different areas. They're going to be formally doing some internships in our youth programs and other areas and going to have them come into some of the deacons and elder meetings. And so you're going to be seeing their faces around. It's the same kind of thing. Paul is pulling in Timothy and he's like, okay, here we go. All right, we're launching here, and you're going to be right here with me on the front lines. And this develops all the way through, of course, into First and Second Timothy, and it becomes the pinnacle of, uh, of really Paul's ministry. Timothy is kind of it. And um, yeah, we'll see a little bit more um, of that uh, in a few minutes as it uh, relates personally to me. Um, we saw that word saints, holy ones, really, that that was, it was a unique translation. We see the word saints occur a lot in the scripture, and, and it really is just the plural of the word holy most of the times in the Bible. 
So like holies, but when we see it in the plural form, it means saints. But when there is an article with it, the holies, it really means the holy ones. It has a whole different impact. Paul is stating something about the believers in Philippi that we don't see mentioned anywhere else in Scripture. This is a very unique breed that he is writing to. And again, we spoke about that a couple weeks ago. I'd encourage you to go back if you missed that. Philippi is this thoroughly Gentile area, pagan religions, massive immorality. Exactly the culture that we live in. This is the United States. There are so many directly applicable points in this text. As I mentioned, the first Gentile church founded on the second missionary journey about 50 or 51 AD. And then Paul writes the letter to them around 61 to 62 AD. 10 to 12 years later, Paul writes to this, his first church. So we consider all that's happened over 10 years. And it's not like uh, like us, like Christ Fellowship. I mean, we're talking about a church that is about the same age as Christ Fellowship is. We may have just a couple years on them. But the starting is completely different. Paul shows up and he preaches the gospel and it's kind of like the old tent revivals in the United States under Moody and others. And you get out there and I mean, it's just hellfire and brimstone. And they're just bringing it. And, and a group of people comes to know the Lord and they become very excitable and, and ready to move forward for the gospel. And we'll see even some references to those people as we move along. And then Paul goes. And that's it. Okay, here you are. Run. And so this is how this church started. And this is what we see 10 to 12 years later. And it's stunning to recognize. So with that, we dive headlong into Philippians. For our message tonight, I've titled our message, A Glorious Gospel Prayer. A Glorious Gospel Prayer. Let's take a look at the first 11 verses, follow along as I read it, and then we'll unpack a little of it. Paul and Timothy, bondservants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi, including the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always offering prayer with joy in my every prayer for you all in view of your participation in the gospel from the first day until now. For I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. For it is only right for me to feel this way about you all because I have you in my heart since both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, you all are partakers of grace with me. For God is my witness how I long for you all with the affections of Christ. And this I pray, that your love may abound still more and more in real knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve the things that are excellent in order to be sincere and blameless until the day of Christ, having been filled with the fruit of righteousness which comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. You know, as you look through that, I think 
you know, there's a, we keep getting these new Bible versions. There's some new CSB version or whatever that's out there that I'm not crazy about and some of these other things. I think we need to write the new revised Southern version. Could you just think how great this would sound, these first verses, if instead of all the you-alls, if we had all y'all in there? I mean, just think how it would roll. I don't know, just read it. Think about that. Somebody wants to try that version? Well, let me know how that goes for you. So, we think about this great text, and, and verses 1 and 2 are our introduction and our first point of this section. And the first point was just the introduction. We covered a good deal of this material. Um, one thing mentioned that is so important is that idea of overseers and deacons in verse 1. And it's very important that he mentions this because he's talking, the, the letter is addressed to the holy ones. So he then specifically inserts the elders and deacons or the overseers and deacons. The term overseer really is a term that is synonymous with elder, only it's specifically focusing on the serving aspects of the elder. So we could say elders or overseers, same term applied to the group that are the elders, but here he's speaking about their serving ministry. And deacons, of course, are, and, and I love Alexander Strock's book, if any of you uh, young men are considering down the road, the Lord may be leading you that direction, Alexander Strock's book, um, The New Testament Deacon, Ministers of Mercy, brilliant piece of work that really focuses on the fact that, that deacons have a vital role in the New Testament church. And those who would look at Acts 6 and say, oh, this was, they were serving tables because there was that dispute against the widows, and uh, so we decided we would come up with some, uh, the seven who are the prototypical deacon. No, 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 no. This, they were not serving tables. Look at the context of Acts chapter 6. The problem was money. Right? The widows aren't getting money to be sustained. It's not like that they're not getting food. It's not like they're, you know, we got dinner downstairs and we're having our Wednesday night supper and now we're just ignoring the Greek widows and not giving them food. No, that's not it. No, they're not getting money to sustain themselves. So when it talks about the elders say, we are too busy, we have to dedicate ourselves to the preaching and teaching of the word and to prayer, the, the prototypical deacons, the seven become those who are dealing with the money of the church. Arguably one of the most important concepts, especially in light of Acts 2, where everyone is giving all of their money, selling everything they had, and giving it all so that anyone who might have need would be provided for. So it's a very, very big deal that he identifies the overseer and deacon in addition to the holy ones. Um. The, the particular importance, again, that we see is in light of the overall themes. That's why this, the elders and deacons or the overseers and deacons become so important because this idea of joy. Now, I know this would never happen to any of you, and I'm sure it's never happened to me, but sometimes when you're serving in church ministry, you can lose your joy. I don't know how that could happen, but I've just heard about it. And so Paul writes, and he says, hey, elders and deacons, don't forget that one of my main themes here is your joy in serving. And then the other thing he teaches, which is maybe even a more prominent theme, is unity. And who is responsible primarily for that? 
the overseers and deacons. So very, very important for us. Um, another unique feature of verse 2 is the harmony of the Trinity. Notice that both Father and Son are responsible for the dispensation of grace as well as peace. Did you notice that there's no Mary in there? I don't know. Maybe the Catholics just missed that. No, there is no co-redemptress. Mary has no role. The Catholic view that says that Mary is the dispenser of all of the grace of Christ is absolutely contrary to verse 2. They're out to lunch on the whole thing. Verse 3 carries us formally into the body of the letter as verses 1 and 2 were our first point, which I just called the introduction. And our second point, which we move to in verse 3, is called the prayer of participation. The prayer of participation is our second point. Well, the introduction and the first Greek word confirm the main word of our title, prayer. That is prayer as in a a glorious gospel prayer, which is our title. Verse 3 also takes us again into that second point, the prayer of participation. The first Greek word is a verb, and it's very simply translated there as I give thanks. This is, this is the, and I, we're going to do a little diving into a, a little of some of the depth of the text, but don't worry, I will spell it out for you, and I want you to see it because you're going to know a lot of this. That first Greek word is the word eucharisto, okay, it's where the word eucharist comes from, E-U-C-H-A-R-I-S-T, eucharist. Okay, now that is a, a, a wonderful theological word. And uh, unfortunately, it is a word with, uh, like several others, that the Catholics have hijacked, like the word sacraments. And I'm not here to beat up on the Catholics. I love the Catholics. I want to evangelize the Catholics. But the, the Catholic hierarchy is out to lunch. And they have taken this great word Eucharist, and they have turned it in to mean the Mass. But that's not it at all, as we'll see. And it's a very important word for us as Christians. The, the Greek compound here, again, the Greek word is eucharisto, so you could say E-U-C-H-A-R-I-S-T-O um, as a, the Greek spelling or the English spelling of the Greek word is actually a compound word. And you can break that into three parts. The E-U is actually one Greek word. The C-H-A-R-I-S-T or C-H-A-R-I-S, more appropriately, is the middle word. And then the T-O is the third word. And they each have a very important meaning for us. E-U is the word well, as in good or or excellent. C-H-A-R-I-S, charis, is the word grace. It's the word we saw back in verse 2. Only here, then the T-O is actually a, a, a verb form of to be. And, and so the thing, whole thing combined is to well offer graciously. To well offer graciously. Now think about that in light of I give thanks. I well offer graciously and giving thanks it's the same idea but it has so much more power because the key element is this connection to grace it's god's unmerited favor 
When we give thanks to God, we are giving it to him for his unmerited favor. What should we give thanks to God for? Anybody, give me something. What do we give thanks to God for? Pardon? Salvation, excellent. What do we give thanks to God for? Yes, Carol. Christ being our intercessor, excellent. We can even get simpler, right? We give thanks to God for food. We give thanks to God for the air that we breathe. We give thanks to, is there anything that we ought not give thanks to God for? Nothing, nothing. But it's not just giving thanks. It's recognizing in that giving thanks that this is to well offer graciously for all of these things God is giving. God's gift of breath to us is a grace gift. Grace is unmerited favor. It's something we do not deserve. What's that mean? We don't deserve salvation. We don't deserve intercession. We don't deserve food. We don't deserve air. Pardon me? That's right. We don't deserve anything. Everything, we don't deserve the blessing of this fellowship. I mean, how wonderful is it to come together and get a hug from Miss Sunny? <laughs> it's the best, right? We don't deserve that. She doesn't deserve to get a hug from us. These are God's grace gifts, unmerited favor rolling out on us. This is the attitude that Paul is telling us to well offer graciously. We need to consider this meaning as it relates to our simple prayers, our simple offerings. Uh, the most common time that this word is used in the scripture, uh, 38, 39 times, is with regards to food. Same thing we do. We pray before our meals and we give thanks. Our food is a grace gift. It's something we should not expect. But it's something we have to be truly grateful for. We have to truly recognize the grace. You know, for those, um, Cameron and a few others that have lived through the Great Depression, Bill, you know, it, it, you, you don't, we don't get it. You know, I remember my dad talking about that. He was born uh, basically at, uh, at sort of at the conclusion of that, and, and he experienced some of it, Willard. It, it's completely different. You know, we have such abundance. We have such abundance compared to the rest of the world, but compared to other periods, I mean, we just don't get it. We, when we think of, of offering grace, and isn't it, we call it grace a lot. Will you say grace, you know? Um, we return thanks. We return favor for a gift. We need to stop and really focus on that. Is this the hard attitude behind when we pray, when we give thanks to God? Paul knew that he was a beggar and deserving of nothing before the Lord. How much more us? How much more us? Paul's gracious thanks in verse 3 in, is in all of his remembrance of the saints or all of the holy ones in Philippi or all y'all. I think that could be our first one there. We're kind of pulling it apart. But in the Greek, it's there. Trust me. I think Greek and Southern are very close. Um, I've heard that the South dialect comes from, uh, a lot of it from the British dialect. 
And uh, I think that, you know, the, the Greek and the British are close, so we can make that connection right there. Um, we can talk about that later. The, the prayer of participation that he brings out here, this thanks to all of them, in all of my remembrance of you, is so amazing. And, and the prayer of participation continues in verse 4, where he says, always offering prayer with joy in my every prayer for you all. The prayer Paul offers is one of joy. And th- this is, again, a continuation of verse 3. So all of Paul's remembrance are always offered with joy as he thinks of the Philippians. Is there someone in your life who just the thought of them brings joy, brings a smile to your life? I hope there's a bunch of people like that in your life. But there are, there, there are those, those, those times, you know. I remember, I just, I just I can't think of it without cracking up. I mean, it just brings a smile to my face every time. We were at, um, at, at Clark Canyon Dam in Dillon, Montana. I'm probably, I don't know, six, seven years old. And my dad's going to go water skiing. And I mean, I've never even seen this whole water skiing thing. We've snow skied because you got snow all year long there. You know, in the northwest, we have two seasons, 4th of July and winter. And um, so my, we're going to go water skiing. And dad's out there and he's sitting on the dock. And he's going to do a dock start sitting. Which I'm thinking, okay, well, this looks kind of crazy. You know, I don't know anything about any of this. Well, he tries it the first time, you know, and straight over the bars, you know, and splash. You know, I just, you know, that's just, a, that was hysterical for me. As a kid, I'm sitting there watching him. So, but he's not, you know, my son is not going to laugh at me. So he's undaunted. So he climbs back up on the dock and he sits back down. He gets all ready and got his, you know, ski all up. And, you know, he's going to take off. And he's one skiing it. Well, he takes off. He's kind of resituated himself. And what he doesn't realize is he's sitting right on the edge of a screw that's just a little bit too high. So as my dad takes off, no, fortunately there was no blood, but what there was is about a quarter of his swimming suit still sitting on the dock. Yeah, he didn't know it. Off he goes, you know, he's doing the whole thing and comes back by and he's making the turns and, you know, he gets to shore, comes back, kind of slides back into the dock and here's this big old hunk of fabric sitting there. It just cracks me up, you know. Every time I think of water skiing, it's just, it's my dad out there, kind of, you know, um, a little indisposed. And it just brings me joy. <laughs> and, and, and this is the smile, this is the joy that is the laughter. But this is a prayer of joy in remembrance. The nature of this joyful remembrance places it in the spiritual realm and it's, it's those that we remember that light our hearts. <laughs> um, I'll apologize for being a, a little emotional. Um, there's a man in my life who, every time I think of him, I've mentioned him from the pulpit a number of times. Um, his name is uh, Robert Thomas. He's written a number of the books that I've recommended to you. He's written the world's best commentary on the book of Revelations. And um, I found out he went home to be with the Lord this morning. And uh, that just absolutely has been so difficult. I'm, I'm so thankful that he's with the Lord. But this was a man who brought so much joy to my life. 
I mean, I'm a, I'm a seminarian. I'm a young seminarian who's not young, right? I'm 45 and in seminary, and here's all these brilliant young guys around me, and, you know, they've got this going on, and I'm just trying to figure out, yeah, which side of the book do I start from? And, and oftentimes, I'd find myself somewhere in the Scripture, and I was, was like, I, I've, I've come to this conundrum. I got a problem, Dr. Thomas. I, there, there's a critical conflict in the Scripture, and I can't get it. And my faith is, you know, rocked all of a sudden because I've stumbled into this one thing in the Bible. And he would just, with the most calm reserve, answer my question, go through all of the details throughout the New Testament and into the Old to explain to me exactly what I thought was a problem, which is no problem at all. And throughout our relationship, as I finished school and had the privilege of traveling with him for a number of years and going to uh, conferences across the country, I would spend the whole year lining up all of my big dog theological questions to ask Dr. Thomas on the plane. You know, we got a four-hour plane ride. We'd be half an hour in, and I'd be through 10 questions and be at the end of my list, and he'd be done, and it was just like, you know, got that. It's just right here. And he brought that he brought that resolve, you know, as, as his daughter told me that he passed away, it just, I had this flood of scripture that came to my mind. Those that we talk about for all of our loved ones as they pass away, precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his godly ones, absent from the body is to be present with the Lord, and, and on and on and on. And, and I'm just weeping because the reason these are so precious to me, the reason that I know how true they are is because he showed me how inviolable God's word is, how perfect it is at every level. And it just brings me such great joy to think about him and, and of course, sadness to think that I, I can't get on the plane anymore and go talk to him. You know, we were out there recently in, in California, Karen and I, and went to the nursing home. He'd had to leave his home and uh, had, had a few minor strokes and we weren't sure what condition we'd find him in and you know his daughter said just go and you know he'll be fine and be ready to see you and we walk in and he's coming out of the dining room with some other people and he looks at us and he goes Scott what are you doing here and and he looks at the people and he goes you know I'm gonna have to put that on hold I'm gonna go spend some time with Scott and and off we go and it just you know this is the joy in every remembrance we all have those people in our lives who are our spiritual fathers and grandfathers who have founded us in this blessed most holy faith. He was the, the Paul and I was the Timothy so much more inept even today and he just such an incredible stalwart for the faith. The consummate apologist and no matter what came his way there was nothing that tilted him off center. And that's what Paul is rejoicing in. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always offering prayer with joy in my every prayer for you all. Do you check all the alls in there? I mean, from verse 3 to 4, there's about, we lose a little of them in the English because there's so many in the Greek, they're awkward. It's like all, all, all. Everything here is saturated with this prayer of remembrance and joy. He is just overwhelmed to consider them. And the nature of this joyful remembrance, again, as it places it in the spiritual realm, is so incredible. The word Paul uses here for prayer is interesting. 
Um, it's not the normal word for prayer. Now, we might not say there is a normal word. There's a more common word, but there are many words for prayer. This particular word that's used twice, and it's the same word in both places in verse 4, is the word that means petition, to request or to ask. We think of the ACTS acronym for prayer. Adoration, confession, thanksgiving, supplication. This would be the S. This would be the supplication, the asking for stuff. That's what he's talking about. Always offering my requests with joy in my every request for you all. Twelve years later, Paul is remembering the nuances of every face. You know, one of the greatest joys about being a pastor is to recognize the, the indispensable principle of every church that this is where I sit. Okay, I know we're going to find Bill and Sharon right here, and usually Tom's going to be right there when Lori's with them. And, and so when I go around the church, I can just sit, and in my mind, I can pray. Okay, there's where Jean should be. There's Miss Marjorie. And just move through and pray. And you can just see Paul just praying for these people, just bringing their requests. You know, I, I know this brother has got some physical afflictions. Oh, I, I know this sister's husband is totally wayward and she's struggling to stay close to the Lord. And you can just feel Paul pouring out these requests for the entire church. So incredible to recognize these requests that he is making. But he has great joy and he makes requests in his remembrances. And then in verse 5, we get to the reason for the joyful remembrance where he says, in view of your participation in the gospel from the first day until now. Here's where our second point is clarified. That is a prayer of participation. Paul's great joy and deep request before God is because of their participation in the gospel. The word participation is the Greek word koinonia. It's not used a bunch, but we actually know it pretty well because it means fellowship. Fellowship. So this word koinonia and, and it, uh, you know, we could spell that C-O-I-N-O-N-I-A, C-O-N-O-N-I-A, and it, it means fellowship, and, and the old King James and the uh, American Standard Version both translate this idea as fellowship, and that's a good translation for their fellowship in the gospel. It's the idea from Acts 2, same word in Acts 2.42, where they were, they were fellowshipping, they were participating and having all things in common, where they're selling all things, where they're taking their meals together. The church is, they're, they're staying together because when you're not together in the ancient world in the time of the writing of the book of Philippians in the early 60s, because keep in mind Nero is just really ramping up and they're starting the burning of Christians in a big way. You know, when you get baptized in that day and age, it is a huge statement because the baptisms occur in open outdoor squares, usually in the Jewish regions around the synagogues in what they call mikvahs or public baths. And in Rome, they had public baths as well, only they've got a very depraved meaning there. But that's where the baptisms happen. Well, you might very well find yourself being baptized and come out of the water to praise the Lord for your new salvation to be put in chains and to be taken to the lions. It's a statement in that day to be baptized. 
So this fellowship, this participation in the gospel, this partnership is a very big deal. And that word koinonia, it's actually where we get the word koine Greek. C-O-I-N-I-A or E, koine Greek. It's, it means common, taking everything in common. There were kind of, when Alexander the Great conquered the modern world, he was, there was a different dialect. It was called classical Greek. It's what Luke spoke in his gospel because he was the physician, he was the trained one. But as over the 300 years from Alexander the Great into the New Testament, the dialect moved down a little bit and it wasn't quite as refined. So it became the common people's language, the koine language. And so this is, is, is what is going on and it is that koine, that common participation and so what this means, the participation in the gospel, is it means to share the gospel. The holy ones, the elders, the deacons are all sharing the gospel. They are an evangelistic church, and they had to be. Because they come and they show up here, and all of a sudden, Paul preaches for a while, and then they're off. The last phrase there of verse 5 shows that they've always been this way where it says from the first day until now. They've always had this mindset of participation in the gospel. They've always focused on carrying that forward for 12 years, going out into the community and preaching Christ. This was a powerful group. Let's think of a few of them. Lydia of Thyatira. Paul goes and he speaks with her. And her whole family is converted because she is the one converting them. We don't see the time sequence in there. I'm sure Paul is interacting with them. But it's this mother who is proclaiming Christ to her family. The Philippian jailer. Right? The big earthquake and all of a sudden he's ready to run himself through because that's what happens under the code of Justinius. In the world of Caesar, if your prisoner gets away, then you get the treatment that your prisoner was going to get. So you got prisoners who are prepared to be put to death. You're going to be put to death when we find out you don't have your prisoner anymore. So he's going to run himself through. And Paul goes, wait! And of course, the wonderful scene and the, and the beautiful lyrics from, the, so from uh, the song that talks about, you know, my chains fell off and I, I was set free. My heart was on fire. And so here the Philippian jailer, Lydia, all of these are powerful witnesses for the Scripture. They're moved in a big way. Blood, this is what happens. This is what happens when you're in the middle of a pagan, immoral world. And the word of the gospel comes. It lights them up. Everything's different. I can't be like this anymore. I need to totally change. It is, it is not like a little kind of, I'm going to turn, I'm going to turn, I'm going to turn. It is an about face, and I am done with that lifestyle. And this is a church of people that have had this impact, and they are growing, and they are moving because that paganism in which they dwell. And then verse 6 concludes our second point here, where it says, For I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. Here is the source of Paul's joy. He's not worried 
about whether they're going to do okay. Because Christ is doing it. It's not you. It's the Lord. It's the Lord who's going to carry you through this. And he is confident of that very thing. The source of Paul's joy, his confidence is in Christ's work in the believers. Not their own work. Christ is going to carry this forward in them. Their participation in the gospel is Christ's work being manifest. And Paul's confidence, really better translated in older versions as being confident, this has always been Paul's confidence. Because it's all of Christ. He knows it's not him. He was the one who was absolutely struck on the road to Damascus. He's the one who if anyone would have turned and left the faith, he would have. All that he'd gone through, all the beatings, all the stonings. At some point you'd say, that's enough. Okay? You know, we talked about the elders and the deacons that might lose a little joy. I think after about three or four beatings and lashings and a stoning or two and a couple shipwrecks i'd say thanks i think the whole pharisee thing it looks okay i mean we live well we got a lot of money that people pay us and we skim a little off the top yeah it's all good but not paul why because he knew it wasn't him he knew it was the lord and that is his strong confidence. That it's actually, that word confidence is a perfect verb. Shows us that from the beginning of Paul's faith, he understood it was nothing but Christ. It's always been nothing but Christ. Not in him, not in anyone. And here is the apostle that probably had nearly, if not all, of the spiritual gifts. Healing, tongues, signs. He's got them all. Got everything going on. He's not relying on anything because he knows where it comes from. It comes all from Christ. And Jesus will perfect it. Notice that future tense verb. Jesus will perfect that work that he begins in you. Incredible to understand the way that that moves forward. And that perfection will begin in the day of Christ that's a very interesting phrase. We're going to see it two more times in the book of Philippians. You'll see it about six times in the scripture as a whole. Not the day of the Lord, not to be confused with the day of the Lord, because that is a day of wrath. That is the day of God's judgment. The day of Christ, even though it often speaks about judgment, is always reward-based. Reward-based. The Bema seat. And, and it is much like the day of the Lord in that it is not a single day. It begins with the rapture. The first occurrence of the day of Christ or the day of Christ Jesus is at the rapture. But it continues. And that day continues through until Christ returns to the earth. And there is a second component of the day of Christ Jesus. And it continues as well past that all the way to the end of the millennium. And there is a third position of the day of Christ at the great white throne judgment. And it is there finally that the day of Christ concludes before the eternal state where, as 1 Corinthians 15, particularly verses 26 to 28 talk about, where Jesus will hand over the kingdom to his God and Father. So this day of Christ is that in which all things will be completed. And there are different ones because there are different people that are going through that 
right? The rapture is the first part. That's where the church will be raptured. That's where they will see Christ and enter into eternity in eternal bodies with him. Then there is Christ's return to the earth after the battle of Armageddon and the Bema Seat Judgment where all of those that make it through the tribulation in physical bodies and the only ones that make it through are the believers because the rest of them get killed in the battle of Armageddon. There is another, is that second occurrence for those people in the tribulation. And then we have the next group which go on through the thousand year millennium and finally their day of the lord is at the end of that time so this is the extended period but notice something else about verse six that's really unique it says for i'm confident of this very thing that he who began a good work that word began seems like began i mean that's everywhere right that's a really normal word nope not this one occurs only two places in scripture here in galatians 3 3 only two places that this word began occurs and both of them refer to the same thing when did god begin a good work when did god begin a good work salvation right just what you're talking about earlier he began the good work in us more specifically let me let me ask a proper question he began a good work in us when he brought salvation to us anybody um go out and find their own salvation I mean, if you did, shouldn't you start it a lot earlier? I, I should have. Way earlier. No. God is the one who brings that to us. In his time and in his way. So he who began that good work, who began salvation, will perfect it. Will conclude it. Will bring it to fruition. This is exactly what we're talking about in Hebrews on sanctification. Same thing progressive sanctification that christ is making happen in us and what does it look like in philippi participation in the gospel sharing the gospel carrying forth the message living the message but speaking the message i believe therefore i spoke we believe therefore we speak Yes, we live it out. Absolutely critical. But if we don't speak it out, we are not living it out. This is what participation in the gospel meant. This is why 12 years later, this is a kick in church. Arguably the best church ever explained in the New Testament. Beautiful beautiful for us to recognize we're going to come back and we're going to look at our next two points next week verse 7 becomes a point in and of itself just so you can kind of consider that as you read verses 8 through 11 will be our fourth point but it is just amazing to see what god is doing in this participation in the gospel and how over and over he is reinforcing to us not only what god will do in us and that it's all the work of christ jesus but what it looks like what it looks like in us participation in the gospel blessed are the feet of those who bring the good news the gospel the euangelion the blessings of jesus christ may he be pleased to help us see that 
to recognize that this prayer of participation is assured in those of salvation. And yet there is that participatory element that we each must do and we each must grow in. And that's why we're together. Because we need help in it. We need encouragement in it. And that's what we do one for another is move each other forward, talk to one another about our daily interactions, disciple one another. How are you doing? You know, what's that place you go to most often? Who do you run into there? How are you doing about talking to them about the gospel?